and you're listening to In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, sports inclusion expert Kirsty Miller joins us and we chat with Synthor and Raj about issues for queer asylum seekers and much more. 3CR. And we do have Kirsty Miller on the line joining us from Broken Hill. Kirsty, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you, James. Great to be back. Last time we chatted off mic, you mentioned Martina Navratilova. Uh, now you've become a fan of hers. What's changed? Yeah, well, Martina and I had a bit of a fallout back um, when Rachel McKinnon won her first world title as a Masters clean cyclist for two years ago now. And, and, and Martina you know, tweeted some pretty bad transphobic stuff and later apologised and retracted and so I've never been a big fan of her, and I've been very vocal in calling her out. But, um, yeah, some things have changed. Um, Martina's actually part of a, a women's sports policy working group that they've got in, a, in America. And um, this is a bipartisan group of former elite athletes and sports administrators. And they've got, like, massive experience in, um, in women's sports policy and also making um, doing LGBT advocacy and that type of stuff. So, yeah, you've got Martina's one of six cisgender women in sport legends um, that, that started this group. So when, when it was announced, I was still not really a, a big fan of Martina because I heard her name and I, I suddenly assumed that she wanted to exclude and, and not include. But in actual fact, I've looked at this group now and, and I've become a signed-on as a supporter of this group that they're actually trying to bridge the gap between the full-on exclusion with no no restrictions and the and, and the full-on exclusion and and these aren't a a, a group that um a GLBTI advocate they're a policy group so they've been formed to help as a bipartisan group to try and help um get the equality act passed through in in America there because at the moment over in America they're facing like 23 vicious bills to exclude not just from sport, but trans people from life, pretty much, in America. And and this group is trying to come up with a fair way that's going to get this through the Senate, and we get it through the Senate, Biden's definitely going to pass it. So, you know, I decided to have a look critically at what this group were doing, and I first looked at their website, and I wasn't too happy with some of the language, but I thought, hang on here, we've got more in common than against. And I'm sort of sick of this. Fighting and, and a lot of the fighting is one-dimensional on Twitter, so it's not really fighting. It's we, we're all passionate people in this, and we've got a lot of ex-world champions and Wimbledon champions. And you don't become a world champion in anything unless you're passionate. So it's, you know, and it's time to come together. So I, I looked into it even more, and I got to meet the the amazing founder of, of this group, um, Nancy Hoggard McCarr. Nancy was a triple gold medalist in the '84 games. Um, in Los Angeles, a swimmer and, and, and won a silver and competed a couple of games and sports hall of famer in international and USA and and you know other people like um, um, Dono Lampino, um, um, Dono Divano, um, Doreen Coleman. All these people have been heavily involved in like global sports development and that. Right, so they're, they're trying to bring. We've got one group that's demanding full inclusion. One, you know. Full exclusion. We're trying to come together, and I've joined as a supporter with another couple of trans women in sports, some legends like Renee Richards, um, Joanna Harper, um, who I haven't always thought I disagreed with, but I'm 
changing my tune on that too now. She's sort of all evolving along the way, Jane. And also Juniper Eastwood, a young NCAA trans athlete, and myself. So, you know, I see this as a, a really good way of... Because in America, they've got about 17 states that have inclusion with some mitigating um, policy, like you've got to be on hormones. They have some states that have absolutely... You can play and, and, and whatever happens, happens. And, and then the other third, there's nothing. So we need to stop this ad hoc approach and we need um, this to be medically and scientifically based, James. And that's what this group is doing. And this is what I've always advocated. So, look, I don't agree with everything written on their website. Um, I now I know that now I'm involved in stuff as well. Like, it's going to evolve. But the core thing is what they're recommending and the policy that they've come up with, I wholeheartedly agree. And it's pretty much... It's going to give a pathway for junior kids in sports. So pretty much in school sports and junior sports over there, like primary and high school, it's going to give the kids up until puberty, the, the male to female trans girl. Um, they'll, they'll compete in the girls' category if they're a girl or the boys, if they're a boy. Once they go through the, the puberty, and well, it'll more than mirror along the lines of an NCAA or a, or a um, OIC policy where... It'll be full inclusion if you mitigate. It'll be partial inclusion, similar to what we have now, but it'll give a pathway for... Because not everyone in junior sport is going to go to elite, but some do, and it's got to be a pathway. So these kids aren't meeting policies because, you know, there's Olympians at 14, 15, 16 years of age. They need a pathway to go to that next level, James. So, you know, I think I've got more in common with Martina than not, Um and I always respect her for who she is, um, and even others on the panel. I haven't always agreed, but I'm sick of the fighting. I'm sick of the bickering, and I want solutions instead of, you know, fighting in court. Let's sit down and this is women working together, not gay groups or not not legal groups. This is women talking together, women in sport, like some legends, trans and cisgender in there. Like, I'm just honoured to, to be, you know, speaking to these people. Kirsty, you do a lot of activism on the issue of testosterone, uh, especially on social media. What can you tell us about that issue? What news have you got? Oh, on a personal note, <laughs> I'm now, as I've said before on here, I'm, I'm 21 years into my transition and about 15 years surgically transitioned. And my body started breaking down about 2013 from the effects of complete androgen deprivation. So my body hasn't produced or had testosterone for 21 years. And sports policy at the moment doesn't allow me to have supplementation to and then continue on in sport, even though it doesn't um, make me a better athlete. But So I've had to remove myself from sport and it's taken me two years to to educate doctors, to finally find a doctor that, that could remotely understand what I was saying. Um, um, I had doctors out here that, I even did a PowerPoint presentation, James, and presented it to a doctor to show that I'm actually XY, not XX, and I don't need estrogen or, or pap smears. I need testosterone like boys do because my bones are breaking. Um, I've got minus 3.2 osteoporosis, James. I've got a lung disease, um, complete muscle atrophy, so many, many health complications, and one of them is a very low sex drive um, and, and mental wellness and all that type of stuff, but... Yes, I got my first injection about eight weeks ago, um, 
and that was a funny experience in itself. I took my partner, Nikki, there, who's got the short black hair, and she's a real tom girl, and, and Kirstie's the blonde hair, but I've got these two poor nurses, and I'm not sure if they've ever met a trans girl or, or whatever before, but they were confused because most girls like me normally don't have this medication, or not that they were aware of, and they didn't know if I was a boy turning into a girl or a girl turning into a boy. And I didn't care. They were just beautiful nurses anyway. But it was just a funny moment. But I got this shot of testosterone. So it was the first time in my life I'd put something back in that I'd been taking out for 21 years. And within about five minutes, I went outside and I saw a telegraph pole, James. And it was the best-looking telegraph pole I've ever seen in my life. Like, everything was beautiful. Um, I just had this immediate feeling of well-being and, and that well-being lasted for about four weeks and that was like the number one thing that I noticed with my first um, injection and I also noticed a little bit of an increase in in, in my energy levels. Um, I noticed that I stopped losing weight um, and my lungs weren't filling up full of um, fluids so you know the, the good looking telegraph poles is a bit of a bonus James you know but it just goes to show you that this thing's got to be balanced in the hormones. Like sport has damaged my health without a doubt and sport has known about my health um, here in Australia for about seven years and I've been begging to get this addressed. So this group in America that, that uh, are doing this work, working um, women's sports group, they want the medical and the scientific evidence in this and this will all become part of it, our endocrine health. So you know, I'm cheering what's going on over there and... and Myself, yeah, like it's amazing. But we've just had some more research, James, come out um, in in the last few days, and it might show us clearer now that testosterone isn't the big determination of who's a good athlete and who isn't. Joanna Harper piloted a systematic review um, through the Lowborough University in in England with some other scholars, and they looked at the effects of hemoglobin levels on trans women that are taking androgen blockers and taking estrogen. And um, what they found was that within three to four months, um, the trans girls' hemoglobin levels are actually reducing down to female levels. Now, this mightn't sound much, but it's huge, James. This is massive, okay? Because what this does is by reducing the levels to female levels, number one, it gives us a scientific reading. It's like we can given the exact reading of where and when they are in their transition. And what it does is low hemoglobin, it, it affects all endurance. It is, in fact, any sport, we've been active more than, say, about two minutes, you hit the hemoglobin in, in your blood, it's important because it takes it takes up all the oxygen. It's, um, it, it reduces the oxygen in your blood, so it can't get it out to the muscles, James. So... Like when you get that feeling of lactic acid, when you, if you've ever been an athlete, this happens massively quick with girls like us. So this, this is um, shown now that this is the, the biggest determination in endurance sports. So it's really great to have this, this um, evidence come out in the last week. So that's going to be a comparable measurable that we're going to be able to use for, for these current and in future trans policy developments. So... It's really exciting stuff, and, and what, it, what it does show as well is it does link the T levels to this, like, without any doubt, which we already know healthy T levels relates to healthy bones and healthy T levels relates to, to um, 
like 200 functions in our bodies, James. So everything. So it's great. The evidence is coming out. I'm really excited for it. Kirsty, you're a passionate supporter of athlete Casta Semenya. What can you tell us about uh, the ban that's effectively been put on her uh, and the campaign to have it overturned? Where's all that at? Well, Casta lost her her um, appeal at CAS and then she lost it in the Swiss Tribunal. And now she's appealed to the European Court of Human Rights. And I believe she's got a really good chance of winning this case, but... It's probably not going to be a verbal hearing. It's probably just going to be written evidence. And I believe Castor's legal team submitted the evidence only this week, their, their, their brief on it. And they're hoping that a, a decision's made before the Olympics this year. I, I really, really can't see that happening. James, I can see this going after the Olympics. But I believe Castor's moved away from the people that she was there the first time with. And she's actually looking at the stuff that we've spoken about before that that this is more about health, not performance. And the thing is, with this, James, and I know that she's going to be able to prove this in, in, in the courts, is they've made this determination that testosterone is the greatest determination of performance in women's sport. Um, Seb Coe has said this, and this is where the policy came from, from what Seb Coe said. Well, the thing is, James, only girls like Caster are the only girls that are made to reduce their testosterone is higher. And we know over 10% of women have high testosterone, XX women. And 10% of women in Britain, blonde-headed women, have high testosterone with XX chromosomes. Even though Sebastian Coe said testosterone is the greatest determination of female athletic performance, these XX girls, like I said, over 10% with high T, and to add to that, People always bag Casta for having, they say she's got internal testes and girls have ovaries. If Casta had ovaries, she would be massively, uh, she'd be unbeatable because ovaries are actually 10 times more sensitive to testosterone than what XY um, androgen receptors are. So these blonde-headed girls from Britain, said Coe's home country, with high testosterone, with XX chromosomes that are 10 times more sensitive to testosterone than castor, they're not even included in, in, in the policy. And above and beyond that, we've got the World Medical Association. The World Medical Association has strongly condemned this a myriad of times from day one. And any doctor, they say, that, that enforces this medication, they're breaching their code of conduct as, as a doctor. And the UN strongly supports. So I really believe Cast is going to win this and it's going to be a massive change and women's health needs will start to get addressed in sport like men, men do and always have. On the world rugby ban front, uh, banning trans women players, any chance of it being overturned? Probably not in the short term, but yeah, I, I definitely see that as overturning. Um, particularly yesterday we had the... International Rugby League come out and said that they're actually in the process of developing their policy and they're looking for exclusion, you know, for inclusion. They're going against world rugby. Um, there's no other one group in the whole world other than these these religious mob over in, in, in the UK and in America and in Australia that are trying to just ban people from society, which world rugby has also done. So, And some of these people in that world rugby group have got ties to these religious mobs over in America. So 
it will be overturned. It will be overturned by sponsorship. It will be overturned in court. Or, like, you know, Australian rugby colleagues go to buggery. They haven't banned us. England hasn't banned trans girls. New Zealand hasn't. Um, and, and, and USA, Canada. So, effectively, no trans girls been banned yet because we've never had an elite rugby union player except for Carolyn Mate, and she would have played for Australia, and and then she she was due to be selected, but her trans status came out and she was vilified from the game pretty much. So you know, um, it, it will be overturned, game. Like Kirsty won't stop until it is. I guarantee it. Kirsty Miller, it is always wonderful to chat with you on 3CR. I love your passion. We're so lucky to have you fighting for trans inclusion in sport. Thank you so much for joining me today on 3CR. Thank you, James. Let's just say one thing. Boys, girls, non-binary people, go out and get your androgen levels checked. If you've got low T, go and get a check because it makes the world a difference in true health. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Kirsty. Keep up the great work. We love you so much. Thank you. Love you. Bye. The wonderful Kirsty Miller there. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. And here's Susie and the Banshees.
Is in the den. She's there. This wheel's on fire. Well, Dr. Synthoran Raj is a law lecturer, author, and human rights activist in the UK and Australia. And Sin begins our interview by describing the hostile scrutiny and rejection that queer asylum seekers often endure. Around the world, there are people who flee persecution uh, every day. You know, there are over. Um, Uh, 70 million people around the world who are internally displaced or have left their country because of war, conflict, uh, or some other form of violence. And of course, uh, many millions of those people uh, flee because they face homophobic or transphobic um, persecution. Uh, We still know that about 70 countries uh, criminalize homosexuality, uh, and even where there aren't laws specifically that criminalize uh, who you are or, or how you behave if you're gay or trans trans or or bisexual or queer, we still do know that um, people are policed, uh, they're punished, they're stigmatised in various ways, they're discriminated and excluded, you know, the the list goes on. And so people go to countries where they feel like they can have a better life, uh, essentially. And Australia, the UK, the US, Canada have been a number of these what are loosely referred to as refugee receiving countries uh, for many years. And of course, Australia has also accepted people um, for more than 20 years now on the basis of their sexual orientation um, and gender identity. And so when people come to seek asylum, they have to sort of demonstrate that they have a well-founded fear of persecution and they have to show and prove uh, their particular aspect of their identity. So whether that's their, um, you know, religious opinion um, or their political opinion, or of course, when it comes to LGBTI plus folks, it it boils down to proving your sexuality or gender identity. In those circumstances, though, it can be really challenging because, of course, how do you prove you're gay? How do you prove you're trans? You know, do you take photos uh, of, uh, you know, yourself having sex, for example? Do you show photographs of yourself at Pride? Uh, Do you talk about your first sexual experience or do you get your partners uh, sexual or or romantic or whatever to write you letters? And these are the kinds of uh, challenges that face people uh, who seek asylum on the basis of their sexuality in particular, um, but also uh, to um, people who, who seek asylum on the basis of their gender identity. And we are seeing unfortunately a lot of decisions where you know if you're seeking asylum on the basis of your sexual orientation in particular a lot of decision makers just simply refuse to believe that you are who you say you are so they just say well you know I just don't believe you're gay or bisexual so to put it in a little bit of historical context Australia started accepting um, you know sexual orientation based asylum claims um, from the mid-90s And at that time, uh, a lot of people who made those claims were accepted as being gay or lesbian, but they were still refused asylum because at that time, uh, decision makers simply told, you know, people seeking asylum that they should be discreet about their sexuality. So, for example, saying that, you know, well, the reason you were bashed 
um, you know, by the strangers was that you were holding hands in public or you were kissing in public. So if you don't do that anymore, you can avoid persecution. Now, of course, for many of us, uh, that is deeply offensive because it, again, places the onus back on the people facing violence to, to monitor or manage who they are to avoid it. And it ultimately undermines the whole purpose of seeking refuge when you're experiencing violence because you shouldn't have to change something fundamental to who you are. And the High Court of Australia agreed with that um, in 2003 and said, actually, this kind of logic that the, you know, the, um, uh, at the time, the Department of Immigration, as it was known then, the kind of logic that they were using was actually unlawful and said that, no, you can't expect people uh, to be discreet in order to avoid persecution. Um, so you have to accept the fact that, you know, people are still going to face violence and persecution regardless of how discreet they are. But even if they aren't discreet, uh, it comes with being true to who you are. So you can't, you know, force people back into the sort of, you know, closet, so to speak, um, to avoid persecution. But following that decision, we saw a bit of a sort of insidious shift, if you like, away from, you know, telling people that they needed to be discreet to simply just disbelieving people um, for who they are. So from 2003 onwards, there are a number of cases where people were claiming asylum on the basis of being gay or lesbian um, and bisexual, and then having their claims rejected, not because of being discreet, but simply because the decision maker said, well, I just don't believe you're gay, you know, prove it to me. And, you know, we've seen a number of cases over the last, uh, you know, decade where people are being asked questions about, you know, do they listen to Madonna? What clubs do they go to? You know, like talk about the interior of Stonewall, um, you know, the Sydney gay nightclub, for example. Uh, You know, talk about your first sexual experiences or, you know, when did you first realise you were gay? I mean, these sorts of questions are a little ridiculous because they're based on obviously stereotypes and very specific kinds of cultural stereotypes about what it means to be gay. Um, But also, of course, uh, it fails to recognise that for many of us, being gay isn't some sort of like narrative that we tell ourselves that, oh, you know, I remember it was a bright Saturday morning. I was watching cartoons when I woke up and realised, actually, maybe I am gay. You know, it's not something as simple as that. For a lot of people, particularly people who don't describe themselves as gay or lesbian to begin with, because, of course, in their own languages, in their own cultures, they have different words and and terms that they use, Um, you know, it can be a real difficult experience even just disclosing that. I mean, we already know that people get stigmatised for coming out um, and discriminated and, of course, persecuted. So you're not going to feel very comfortable disclosing that anyway. But even when you do, we also need to accept that there are a lot of people out there who have really complicated experiences of what it means to be, you know, queer or gay or bisexual, um, and indeed what it means to be trans and gender diverse. I mean, there is no one-size-fits-all narrative. And unfortunately, when it comes to the way a lot of our immigration bureaucracies work, not just in Australia, but in many other countries that accept people who seek asylum, we see the same kinds of problems. That is, they try to force everyone to fit into these very narrow boxes um, about what it means to be LGBT uh, and, you know, intersex and and, and other kind of, um, you know, gender, sex and sexual orientation differences. But of course, it's not as simple as that and people's lives are fluid. Absolutely. And it sounds like refugees and asylum seekers really have to deal with that intersection of racism, Mm. homophobia and transphobia. Absolutely. Recently, you wrote, this is your reminder that the British Empire was built on white supremacy. There's nothing to defend about an institution that marketed slavery, genocide, ethnic cleansing and dispossession. Can you talk a bit more about that? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to connect back to what I was talking about before about the many countries that criminalize uh, homosexuality, you know, there are over 30 countries in the Commonwealth that still have laws uh, criminalizing, uh, you know, male uh, homosexuality, essentially. And those laws are a product, of course, of British colonization. I mean, of course, they have been retained by post-colonial governments. So I'm not trying to, um, you know, uh, discount the current government's responsibilities for these archaic and and horrendous laws. But I think it's so important to remember that so much of the kind of uh, homophobia that a lot of post-colonial nations are kind of uh, essentially spouting um, or or using LGBT people as scapegoats is a product of a real complex set of circumstances of which colonisation is a part. You know, when you look back to all of these laws, they're traced back to various iterations of uh, English penal law. And so, you know, in particular as well, to reckon with the fact that, you know, the British Empire wasn't this kind of bastion of democracy. So often it's talked about as, you know, bringing civilization to the masses and bringing democracy. But of course, we know it exported hugely homophobic and transphobic laws. But not only that, when it came to a lot of these nations, you know, places like uh, India, for example, it sought to eradicate the kind of queerness, um, uh, cultural, sexual, gendered queerness that existed in a lot of these places where basically, you know, you have, for example, uh, the Hijra communities uh, in India. We would loosely describe them as sort of trans communities in our current vocabulary. Um, and they were a rich uh, community, a thriving community that was essentially kind of, um, you know, forced uh, into these uh you know, boxes of, of stigmatization and exclusion because, of course, they didn't fit into sort of very narrow Victorian ideals of, of, of gender and of sexuality and, of course, propriety. And not only in relation to gender and sexuality, but, of course, the whole feature of empire was around this kind of civilizing mission that sought to basically enslave um, black and brown communities to dispossess them of their land. I mean, in Australia, we know this very well uh, with, of course, uh, the dispossession of indigenous peoples and, um, you know, the colonization of First Nations. And so it's really important, I think, that when we talk about, you know, the histories of homophobia and transphobia and indeed a lot of the human rights issues facing LGBT communities communities and of course um, we can include intersex communities uh, and you know asexual communities and other communities here as well that so much of that also stems from you know racism and especially sort of very colonial very specific colonial ideas um, about you know people and communities and you know unfortunately we see a lot of uh, attempts to sort of render this history sort of uh, romantic or uh, you know patriotic um, particularly you know as someone who is usually resident and works in the UK we see a lot of this talk around you know nationalism and you know remembering history and not feeling guilty and of course you know it's not about feeling guilty. It's about just being honest about history. And I think it's so important as our communities try to, uh, you know, advance human rights for LGBT people around the world, that one of the things we also reckon with is the fact that racism uh, and colonisation is, is a big part of that and continues to be. Are you concerned about the rise of the far right in Britain and uh, the country's tendency perhaps to fall into authoritarianism like we saw with the US? Absolutely. I mean, I think we all need to be very vigilant to the rise of the far right and indeed kind of fascists or white supremacist movements that we're seeing, you know, being emboldened in, you know, all parts of the world. We see it in Australia, we see it in the UK, 
We see it in the US, Canada, you know, Poland. Um, we've seen, um, you know, the rise of kind of, you know, almost dictatorial styles of uh, politics in places like Hungary, in Brazil, which obviously have a, a hugely disproportionate impacts on queer um, and LGBT communities who are often used as scapegoats, as, as we know, for very specific authoritarian ideals of the family, um, of, you know, um, masculinity and so on. I also think it's important that we reckon with the fact that fascism also thrives within certain LGBT and queer spaces. So, we also need to reckon with, you know, how white supremacy functions, particularly in certain gay and lesbian um, spaces, um, where we see in various parts of the world, um, you know, these far right groups actually sort of bring in gay and lesbian communities, um, well, I'll be very specific here, cis, white, um, uh, typically middle class uh, communities, um, to their kind of cause, you know, this kind of anti-Islamization, quote-unquote, narrative that we see a lot, this xenophobic, racist narrative that a lot of kind of LGBT rights can sometimes fit into, you know, this idea that, you know, these foreigners elsewhere are deeply homophobic or transphobic. We don't want them coming into our, quote-unquote, country um, because, of course, we want to protect, quote-unquote, our values. And so I think it's really important not only to recognise that these threats are external to us, but also implicated in our own communities as well. You know, racism, white supremacy is a huge problem um, within LGBT spaces, uh, and we know this. Um, you know, it's not new. Uh, it's always been around. But I think at this particular moment we also need to be very cautious about how, you know, we're seeing, uh, as one specific example, the association of kind of, um, you know, white supremacists and far-right groups with anti-trans groups, uh, and in particular anti-trans, um, you know, feminist, uh, quote-unquote, and some quote-unquote radical lesbian groups as well, where we've seen their kind of politics essentially aligning, you know, this idea that trans rights poses a threat to women, uh, the well-being of women, the safety of women and children. Uh, we're seeing that rhetoric mobilised in many countries um, and it's bringing together this kind of very odd association of the sort of far-right groups that you would typically expect to hear this rhetoric from, but also some gay and lesbian groups. Uh, unfortunately, we've, we've heard of, of some very um, reactionary, you know, uh, gay and lesbian organisations emerge, and I use that term loosely because they essentially are anti-trans organisations, but they are effectively kind of aligning themselves with these far-right groups. So I think as a community, we also have to be very wary of how our own members or our own community are being implicated in these politics. You're listening to an interview with Dr. Sinthor and Raj on 3CRs in your face. 3CR. Tell us about your journey as a queer person of colour in the UK and how that's impacted on your really strong commitment and enormously wonderful track record in LGBTIQ human rights. Well, I think uh, that's a very generous uh, statement for you to make. Um, uh, I suppose when I when I talk about my own experience, it, it really begins here in um, Australia. You know, I, I was raised in Sydney and um, I spent most of my life here. Um, and uh, so much of my kind of uh, development as a queer activist really happened because of the spaces and people I got to meet, particularly when I started university, you know, getting involved in particular with Amnesty International, um, you know, the global human rights um, organization um, where I still do a, a lot of work uh, today I've been you know really uh, you know privileged uh, to meet a lot of wonderful activists um, you know particularly you know um, black uh, uh, 
brown, um, you know, queer activists um, who have been doing this work for, for decades, often with little recognition, and just hearing from them the kinds of things that they were doing. Um, and it really just spurred a passion in me, you know, my own life as a kind of queer migrant, you know, bringing my own personal life to bear on my political and activist interests. Um, I started just getting more involved with kind of campaigning and organising, and I, I was quite lucky. I, I got a job with the Gay and Lesbian Rights Lobby here in Sydney about 10 years ago, um, where I was involved with a lot of policy work for same-sex couples and their family doing work around adoption, surrogacy, and of course, anti-discrimination laws, and uh, to a lesser extent, sort of marriage equality. And during that time, I just felt like this was the kind of work I wanted to be doing. You know, I also had been doing a lot of work in um, queer spaces and activism work, and I was trying to bring together my interests in sort of activism with my interests in law as a, you know, someone is a trained um, as a lawyer uh, when I was at law school as an undergrad um, and then kind of thinking to myself, well, how can I make the most of this this law degree? And, and for me, it was very much about kind of thinking about using law as a way to achieve kind of human rights and, and, and also build communities, uh, you know, because I think that's also important. Um, and so uh, I suppose I have found that being kind of a queer person of colour, both in Australia and the UK, is a, is a little bit of a challenge in, in slightly different ways. Um, I think, unfortunately, and, you know, to give a very brutal assessment, you know, LGBT and rights, quote unquote, organising um, in Australia is, is enormously white. Um, and, and, you know, that's a product of many things, many factors, but we also need to take into account the broader history of kind of, you know, whiteness and, and racism that structures so much of kind of the NGO sector here in Australia. And naturally that would, or inevitably, I should say, that would have an impact on the way LGBT groups work. Um, and I think, you know, as one of the few queer people of colour. Um, I will say that there have been some, you know, uh, great uh, queer activists of colour who have also worked at uh, LGBT rights organisations, but we were quite a few in number um, and certainly not in super high leadership positions. I was very fortunate in my role at the lobby. I was able to take a, a fairly strong leadership role, but I think, you know, we're still dealing with a lot of that, um, you know, stuff with racism within our community and we see that kind of play out as well in a lot of well-meaning organizations and you know unfortunately that is still still an issue and and you know it's something that I was able to sort of I suppose tolerate um, while I was doing the work because I often thought you know there are bigger issues here I don't want to bring up racism I don't want to bring all this stuff up all the time because I'll never get any of my work done but I think it's so important to be able to have these conversations. And certainly I have been having, I feel more confident to have these conversations now because, of course, that's the other thing when you talk to a lot of uh, queer activists of colour as well, when they're involved in particularly queer spaces. Um, so often, you know, racism uh, and uh, xenophobia, if you want to use that word as well, poses a huge problem. But you don't want to always talk about it. Because, you know, if you're the only one in the room, you'll often be seen as divisive or you'll be seen as difficult um, for bringing up these issues when there are, quote, unquote, more important things to deal with. And so, you know, that's unfortunate. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. I can relate to that. And um, I'm hopeful that, you know, as we see many more people of colour take up leadership positions within kind of queer spaces and queer organizing, we're seeing a lot more explicit conversations about racism. I mean, for example, in the UK now, um, you know, I do stuff with the 
uh, Rainbow Network at Amnesty International UK. And, you know, a lot of that network is comprised of, you know, queer people of colour and trans people of colour who are in leadership positions, who are bringing this conversation around LGBT rights into conversation with anti-racist organising, um, because it is so important to have that as, as, as a key part of LGBT rights activism. Because, of course, for a lot of people in this space as well, it's often a a difficult choice, you know, where you're faced with this, okay, do I align myself with, you know, queer groups that may be racist uh, to advance particular LGBT rights? Um, or do I align myself with, you know, um, my own kind of, you know, cultural or ethnic communities, because I know that they're under attack, or religious communities, because I know they're under attack by, you know, um, broader uh, institutions, but at the same time, how much homophobia or transphobia do I tolerate there? You know, and so often it was this kind of, you know, stark choice, unfortunately, Unfortunately, with this very binary idea of, you know, LGBT rights here, anti-racist organizing over there. But I think we're seeing a lot more work going into sort of bringing these two things together. And indeed, with other areas of work as well, you know, uh, feminist organizing, disability justice organizing, we're seeing, you know, Indigenous rights um, and Indigenous justice uh, and sovereignty work coming together around queer issues as well. I mean, I think there's some really fabulous work that's happening. So I think, you know, with a lot of the work that queer people of colour are doing, I think there's a lot of exciting possibility, but I do think there's still a long way to go. You must be very concerned that the federal government's religious discrimination bill threatens to wind back human rights in Australia by decades. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, unfortunately, this is a rhetoric that we see you know, in many parts of the world, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of it in the US, uh, we're seeing it a, a lot here in Australia as well, this idea that, you know, uh, religious freedom is somehow under threat by the increasing visibility and acceptance of LGBT people. Um, and of course, even that uh, sort of division between religious freedom and, and sexual orientation and gender identity-based freedom, on the other hand, is already kind of ignoring the fact that there are many uh, LGBT religious folks out there. And, and and so often, you know, religious freedom and sexual orientation, gender identity is seen as somehow antithetical, when for so many people they're not. Um, and that's fundamentally one of the issues that we have with this sort of religious um, freedom bill, is that it presents, um, you know, what it means to be gay or trans or bisexual and what it means to be, you know, religious as a stark opposites. And I think that that's something we have to contest. And certainly when it comes to the provision of public services and social services and commercial services, something we need to resist uh, quite uh, fundamentally, because these laws are essentially designed to give people the, the ability to discriminate uh, in areas of public life, um, where it's not about, you know, being a priest, um, or about being, a, you know, a, a a religious worker as such. It's about, you know, not baking the gay cake for a gay wedding, quote unquote, or or not selling the flowers um, or not allowing someone into your aged care facility because they're in a same-sex relationship or because they're trans. I mean, these are the kinds of things that we have to resist because so many social services and public services these days are provided by um NGOs, non-government organisations, um, and in particular, a lot of faith-based organisations. And of course, a lot of faith-based organisations do so without discriminating. And I think that's the other point that this religious freedom bill forgets is actually many 
religious groups don't want these exemptions. You know, I think it's a case again of a very vocal minority uh, speaking on behalf of, of large communities of people um, and in doing so marginalising both in, in different ways and in particular marginalising those LGBT people who are Christian, who are Muslim, who are Hindu, who are Jewish. Uh, and it's so important that we resist this and I, I think that that religious freedom bill is deeply insidious and, and deeply destructive. So um, I'm very hopeful that that never passes because not only do we need to stop that legislation from going through, we still have to work on the various exemptions under all the state and uh, territory laws that still exist uh, because they unfortunately are still too wide. Zen, tell us about the academic work that you're currently undertaking. Sure. So um Obviously, a lot of my academic work relates to, to sort of my activism. I've been doing a lot of work um, around, you know, refugee law and LGBT rights um, for a number of years um, and thinking about how we create spaces using law, using bureaucracy for people to sort of tell their stories uh, in a more authentic way, to tell their narratives in a way that's supported and resourced so that they can get the appropriate sort of recognition that they deserve. Um, I'm also really interested and in sort of working on a project with a number of collaborators um, on what it might mean to sort of rewrite law from a queer perspective, you know, um, to, to obviously think about all those intersecting issues around race, class, um, you know, disability, gender, um, religion, uh, bring all of those differences into bear, but also, you know, think about how we can write or rewrite judgments, for example, legal judgments that are really um, attentive uh, to communities, uh, the various LGBT communities um, that that exist in the world. Uh, and this is a really kind of uh, interesting project. It builds on a lot of um, existing legal projects like uh, the Feminist Judgments Project, for example, which was simply rewriting judgments from a feminist perspective. And I think there's a lot to be said about how we can use law as queer people because we often have had a very sort of problematic, to, to use a very euphemistic word, uh, relationship with the law. You know, the law has been a site for our discrimination, for our exclusion, for our stigma, um, for inflicting violence upon us. And indeed, in many parts of the world, it still is. You know, you look at laws and they have a direct uh, sort of statement around why LGBT people should be excluded uh, and violated. Uh, and so sometimes people and many people at that, I should say, um, feel, you know, logically that law is not going to be our saviour when it's been the source of our problems. But I guess I take a little bit more of a sort of ambivalent approach. I think that's right. There are obvious laws that need to be dismantled and challenged and refused. But also I think there are ways we can use law to support our communities uh, and to improve the way, um, you know, we we live uh, together and to ensure justice for our communities. And that's something I'm I'm interested in. So as, and so for me, that's the kind of tension I'm working with, but hopefully um, doing some work around uh, when it comes to sort of where my academic work is going. Sen Raj, it's been absolutely fascinating chatting with you. Thank you so much for talking to me today on 3CR. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, James. 3CR.
The Pointer Sisters there. Goldmine. I'm out of here. Jacob's up next for the Friday Rave. Taking us as David Bowie and we'll catch you next week on In Your Face. Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook. <laughs>